Hey, if you're a burdened soul found grace at Calvary, would you just say amen? Amen, amen, and amen. I got one scripture, and it's a rather brief scripture that I want us to read for you to hear this morning. We're going to be in Acts 22, but for this moment, this scripture reading, it's just one verse, and it's from Proverbs, right? So this is a proverb. I want you to hear it, and then our goal this morning is to see how this proverb really plays out in the Apostle Paul's life, and then by God's grace, you might be able to apply it to, uh, to your life. So here we go. This proverb gives a diagnosis of something that's very dangerous, and I think, it's my opinion, that this is a universal issue. In other words, when you hear this proverb, there's probably not anybody in this room that's going to say, ah, it doesn't really have anything to do with me. You ready for it? The word's powerful, right? But you got to be ready to receive it. Jesus talked about the Word of God being like a seed. It's got to find good soil. I want it to find good soil. So are you ready to receive this Word? It's Proverbs 29, verse 25. Proverbs 29, 25, it says this, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You hear it? The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Well, let's pray together as we get ready to study the Word of God this morning. Father, thank you for Jesus. And thank you because of Jesus, the fear of other people, the fear of man, as this proverb articulates, is it is something that we can be freed from. We do not have to go through life constantly worried or concerned what other people think. We don't have to make our decisions based on what others expect of us. In fact, if we live that way, we won't be able to obey you regularly or to witness for you effectively. Thank you that we see in Scripture a man, the Apostle Paul, who when he met Jesus, he was totally freed from the snare of fearing other people. Now, Father, we recognize and understand that doesn't mean that he didn't face danger, didn't face physical harm, didn't face pressure. But Paul purposed that he'd be a servant of the Lord. And therefore, as he says in the scripture, as we'll see, because I'm a servant of God, I don't seek the approval of other people. But we confess, Father, the uh, desire and even the deep need we have for the approval of others. It can be a snare for us. So our desire is to be freed from it. Use your word, your grace, and the Holy Spirit for that purpose in our lives. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'd be hard-pressed to find a theme all through the Scripture that's more consistent than this, that the fear of other people, the fear of man, if you will, is very dangerous to our souls. In fact, some of the great men and women of the faith really wrestled with this. You remember Abraham, he takes a trip down to Egypt, and he was so afraid of other people that he lied and said, Sarah is not my wife, she's my sister. Remember, Moses wrestled with the fear of other people. Jonathan, I'm sorry, um, Saul, the first king of Israel, was really paralyzed and he was really consumed with what other people were going to think about me. So before we go much further, let's make sure we're on the same page of what it means to fear other people. The fear of man is, uh, is the motivation to pursue the approval of others. Fear, this word fear, we're talking about in the Bible, is sort of a broad term. It means you, you, you really, really deeply concerned with what others think of you. I just want you to think for a moment, if you can have the humility and allow the Holy Spirit to shine a light, is, is do you live under this sort of paralysis 
I've really worried about what others think. I want to give you a story from my own life that sort of illustrates how powerful the fear of other people can be. When I was a sophomore at uh, Rocky Mount Senior High, we didn't call it Rocky Mount High School back then, it was Rocky Mount Senior High, I showed up in the spring semester, uh, and as I was walking to my first period class, the guidance counselor came up to me and said, hey, Brandon, I heard you're up for the Excellence in History Award today. It was the awards assembly towards the end of the year, and this is the first I'd heard of this, right? The awards assembly, and I'm up for an award. Now, I'd come to school as a sophomore dressed like I normally came to school as a sophomore, just some jeans and some old tennis shoes and a t-shirt. And the awards assembly is something that you're supposed to, at least back then, I don't know how it works now, kind of dress up for, right? I mean, parents are going to be there. I'm already worried. My mom's not even here, and she finds out that I've got an award. It's the first I've heard of it, and then, back then particularly, I was extremely introverted. And the thought of having to stand up in front of the entire school, walk to the podium and receive some sort of award was terrifying to me. I started to sweat immediately. And that began to make me think, I'm going to have to walk in front of everybody and I'm going to have sweated through my shirt. And I'm going to have the, well, we won't go into those details, but it's not, it's not the look that I'm going for. And what if I stumble up there? What if I trip on the way? I'm just going to have to climb from the bleachers down. And I'm just, I'm just, if I could have left the school at that moment, I would have. In fact, I think I thought about it. I, I don't think I thought about it. I know that I thought about it. Can I just walk home from here? I'm just terrified. And we're going to go through first period, and then we're going to have the awards assembly. And the whole first period, I'm just nervous. Palms are sweaty. I can't grip the pencil. I'm just like, ah. And then we go into the assembly. And I'm started thinking to myself, can I just climb under the, can I climb under the, uh, the, the bleachers there? I'm a sophomore, and at the time, Julie was a, a, a senior, just in case you didn't know that. She was slightly older than me. And uh, I, I find out when I get there and I see her, and I'm like, oh, man, this is, uh, uh, it, is, it, is it good to win the Excellence in History Award? Do, do, do chicks kind of dig that? I don't even know. But uh, I'm going to have to go and stand in front of her and, and then other people. I'm just, I'm just getting more and more nervous. And I'm really, I mean, I'm, I'm like having, I'm shaking. My heart rate is up. And the assembly begins, and uh, uh, they're going to do it in order, the 10th grade, and then the 11th grade, and the 12th grade. And so I see the, uh, the, department, uh, the head of the Department of History walk up and say, well, now we're going to have the Excellence in History Award. And my, I can't hardly breathe. What am I going to do? I, th- I, th- I think maybe I'll just duck out to the bathroom, but that'd be even worse, right? They're going to say my name, and then everyone's going to look around, and where is he, are you in the bathroom? No, that's not going to work. I'm just horrified. And then they say, and this year's for the sophomore class excellence in history award goes to, and I'm kind of ducking down, and then they say the name, and it's not my name. (laughs) Somebody else's name. Girl in my class, and she stands up, and she starts to walk down, and I'm going to tell you this, instantly, inside, I changed, and I got angry and i was just telling you these are the thoughts going through my mind they gave the award to her that award should have come to me 
and I have these thoughts, these terrible thoughts going through my, through my mind. I'm in class with her. She might be book smart, but she's not real world history smart. I bet she doesn't even know when the world, Second World War started. She probably doesn't even know Abraham Lincoln's birthday, which was last Sunday, by the way, February the 12th. And she's making her way up, and people are applauding her, and people are taking pictures. And I see her mom and dad, and they're so proud. And I'm getting angry about it. My, my blood starts to, to, to boil, and she comes back, and she's starting to sit down. And I'm thinking, man, that would have looked good on my college transcript. Or, or when I apply, and she's sitting down, and everybody's patting her on the back, and I'm, I'm just biting my tongue. And I was kind of worked up about it the rest of the day. We got to later on to history class, and I'm sitting beside her, still angry. Do you see how the fear of man works kind of both ways, right? There's fear. What is everybody going to think about me on one hand? And then there's anger when we don't get the recognition we think we deserve on the other hand. You know what I'm talking about? You say, well, how does anger relate to fear? Well, there... Uh, if you don't know this already, you learned this. All anger is rooted in fear. That's why people get angry, is they're fearful about something. So the next time you see somebody really worked up in anger, you can ask them the question. It'll probably make them angry, but angrier. You just ask them the question, well, what is it that you're afraid of? You know why a lot of men get, in, uh, get angry? Because they're fearful about being embarrassed. Fear, fearful about being exposed. They have the fear of man. They don't, don't examine me. Don't, don't look at me. Don't have expectations of me. And so, so many men, particularly, respond in great <laughs> anger. The fear of man is a snare. Did you see how, just in that little illustration that I gave you, that I, that I, was, uh, uh, that, that I was ensnared? First of all, I was ensnared about, man, I'm afraid to stand up in front of everybody else. And then I was ensnared, angry and jealous about somebody else getting the recognition so you can start to sort of sift through in your own heart in your own mind do I really wrestle with the fear of man one on one hand just kind of afraid to be exposed and then on the other hand do I do I, do I really resent when other people are recognized and successful uh, uh, I think you'll recognize in Paul's life he had truly been liberated from these things we're going to talk about how he was able to to come to that. So the, the way that the fear of man works is uh, this. It kind of ensnares us in one of two places. Now you think about what it even means to be ensnared, right? The fear of man lays a snare. What is a snare? It's a trap, right? Now, now I'm um, um, not uh, uh, big time into hunting and whatnot, but I know that you could lay a trap for whatever it is that you're hunting. If they become ensnared, what happens? They can't move. They can't make any progress. And so spiritually speaking, a lot of people get ensnared in the fear of man, and, uh, and they're just stuck. You know, the number one reason we don't share the gospel with other people is what we're talking about right here. I'm afraid of what they're going to, what? Help me out, church. Think about me, right? They're going to think I'm weird. They're going to think I'm one of those odd religious people, right? Do you think that Paul had that mentality? I don't think he had it at all. You know what he, well, we're going to talk about it. So first of all, the, the fear of man lays a snare in that I'm, and that I need people to approve me more than I love them, and I uh, use people more than I serve them. So you see, the fear of man leaves us trapped in a scenario where we don't really love people, and we don't really serve people. And here's why it's a big deal. You know the primary means that the gospel goes forth to others is by our loving them and our serving them. So when we are ensnared in the fear of other people, this is why it's a big deal, because the gospel doesn't go forth. We don't love people. We don't serve them. Instead, 
we use people in a way that doesn't bring God glory. When God shapes a person, and Paul's a good, the best example I can think of this morning, to be a mighty instrument in his hands, one of the first things he squeezes out of us is the need for the approval of others. So again, before we dive into the outline, just fear that we're talking about in the Bible refers to being in awe of somebody or being controlled by someone or worshiping someone or putting our trust in someone, needing someone. If you're uh, tracking along with our fighter verses, one of our early fighter verses was this, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear him? And, and, I, and I'll be honest, when I first read that, I thought that was, that, that was it's interesting that that one comes first, right? But it comes first for a reason, because you're not going to be able to fear God and fear others simultaneously, right? One of them is going to be the sort of the dominant, driving, motivating uh, force in your life. It'll motivate your decisions, it'll motivate your actions, your words, so on and so forth. So here's the big choice for us, we either fear people or fear God. Now you're going to be here in Acts 22, but I want you to go on over here and turn to Galatians uh, chapter 1, and I just want to read one verse from Paul, uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse number 10. Galatians 1, 10. Paul writing here says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? It's a good question, isn't it? Am I seeking the approval of other people or am I seeking the approval of God? Notice what he says. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man. And you notice what he says, still trying to do it. What's the implication is? There was a time in my life that's what I was trying to do. And he saw how angry it made him, right? When we first see him before he came to faith in Christ. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now that's plain as day, isn't it, friends? You cannot, you cannot, you cannot be a servant of Christ and seek the approval or try to please other people. So uh, we'll see here, uh, we'll just read a few verses back here in Acts 21, and I think you'll see a scenario where Paul could have easily been ensnared in the trap of fearing other people. We left off here, and so Paul going to Jerusalem, verse 27, remember that's been in this tense situation where a lot of people who don't agree with Paul uh, respond with violence towards him. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia seeking him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. That wasn't true, but that's what they began to smear his character about. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Also not true. But verse 29, For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. It's important to note in the city, not in the temple, but they, uh, in, in those days it was uh, against the Jewish law to bring a Gentile into the inner court of the temple. And they supposed that Paul, they supposed that Paul, ever happened in your life? Somebody says something about you that's not actually true? They went ahead and made a determination that it was true. Had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. It's sort of a mob mentality. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. It would be a time to sort of be fearful, wouldn't it? 
and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, that's an imperfect verb in the Greek, meaning that it was going on for, uh, for a little while here. They're trying to kill him. They're seeking to kill him. Word came to the tribune of the cohort, cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. A quick time out, just real quick. In those days, the Romans were actually in charge, legally. They, they had the governing jurisdiction. And if you were uh, uh, in charge as a Roman, uh, the one thing you don't want to happen in your city is chaos. Your primary job responsibility was to keep stability by any means necessary. Because if, if, um, if you were not able to keep stability in a place, they'd replace you with someone else. And uh, let's just say you probably go to exile or somewhere. So, so, so your job security is about your ability to um, keep things stable, which explains a lot of Pilate, for example, his decision-making when Jesus was on trial, right? He knew that Jesus was an innocent man, but what began to happen is the crowd shouted, crucify, in order to make um, uh, the, the people calm down, he did what he did. So we got sort of a similar situation, right? If there's a riot in a city, the, the governing authorities are going to be in trouble with their bosses. So uh, it says that they were seeking to kill him, or rather, verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, right? And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, kind of a chaotic scene, isn't it? He ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying out, away with him. Kind of a fearful scene, isn't it? A place that you could be afraid of, of, uh, uh, of other people. So let's talk for a moment about facing the fear of others. Right? It's, again, a universal problem, I think. We all wrestle with it for one degree or uh, another. The faithful, again, throughout the scripture have wrestled with this, Abraham and and, uh, and David, one of the, one of the key uh, people to me in the scripture that really wrestles with this is Peter himself. And we've seen times in the book of Acts where he's really wrestled through this. So a couple of reasons I think we're fear, we can be fearful of others is, number one, uh, we fear others because they can expose us. Well, let's go all the way back to the beginning here, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, Genesis 2, I want you to see a pretty clear progression when sin entered the world, first of all, Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25, the Bible says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Right? Not ashamed. Nothing to, nothing to cover up. Right? Nothing to hide. Adam's not sitting there thinking, well, I hope Eve never finds out about this. This is what the Scripture is talking about, right? But no secrets, no cover-ups, nothing. But then, we won't go through all these verses, but then sin enters the world. And friends, everything changes at that point. Look what happens. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, or verse 9, The Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, that's not because God didn't know where Adam and Eve were. It's because Adam and Eve didn't know where they were. Verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. All anger is rooted in what? It's in fear. 
So he's afraid, and then you're going to hear his anger come out. Because I was naked, and I hid myself. See, hidings come into the world. So He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Here we go. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And men have been denying their responsibilities ever since, right? Adam and Eve, naked, unashamed. Sin enters. Adam says it's her fault, and really by implication, God, it's your fault. You're the one who idea was for her to show up to begin with right they were not ashamed and then they sewed fig leaves together uh, earlier in chapter 3 uh, verse 7 then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths so we fear others because they can expose us right you got a fear that somebody's going to find out you got something that you've been trying to cover up right we fear others will really know the truth about us so, so in our pride, we try to cover it up. We try to hide. And the greater the difference between our public life and our private life, the greater the fear, right? And uh, interestingly enough, how it actually plays out is uh, we simultaneously want to cover up while we spy on other people. Isn't that interesting, right? We, we want the dirt on others, but we don't want anybody to cover or uh, anybody uh, to know what's going on in our life. In a great book by Ed Welch, an author I have great... Uh, admiration for in, in his book when people are big and god is small the great title he he says we want to hide but we also want to spy spying might reveal the vulnerability of others so that we can believe that they are no different from us or even not as good as us disgrace wants company right so here's adam and he wants to expose eve right she's the one she's to blame her fault her responsibility so on and so forth, and that just breeds more and more fear. There's an old story, you might have heard it, from the 19th century. I don't think it's actually true, but it was just used uh, as, as an il- illustration that uh, someone sat down and wrote an anonymous letter to five different people. And in, the, and in the anonymous letter, he wrote the same thing. He said very succinctly, all is found out. Everything you were covering up has been revealed. And sent those five letters out to five different people. And uh, before the day was over, four of them had left town, right? Just talking about we've all got something, man. We don't want anybody else to know about. So let me, please hear this. There is somebody who knows everything that you're trying to cover. If there's something you're hoping no one else ever finds out about, God already knows about it. Uh, however you tried to cover it up you remember david in second samuel 11 after his adulterous relationship with bathsheba the rest of that chapter he tries to cover up and it just gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse it involves other people and the more he tries to cover it up the worse that it gets jesus listen this is important jesus knows you better than anybody and he loves you deeper than anybody you see that both are true right both are true so who knows you best loves you most and you can search all your life and you'll not find a stronger better more faithful deeper pure merciful forgiving or sacrificial love in fact jesus works the very opposite of adam did right 
When Adam says, oh, it's her fault, you know how Jesus treats his bride, the church? He says, I'm going to take responsibility for this, even though this sin is not mine. I'm going to cover my bride up. I'm not going to hide. I'm going to go public. I'm going to go public to Calvary, and I'm going to be crucified for sin that is not my own. Uh, We fear others because they can expose us. But you can be liberated from this knowing that while you can't hide anything from God, he still loves you. And he will cover your sin. Amen? You know what I'm talking about? They're trying to hide. They're trying to hide. They're trying to hide. They're going to cover it all up. But it doesn't work because you can fool everybody on planet Earth, but you're not going to fool him. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And while on one hand that's true, again, please hear, say it again. Nobody knows you better than Jesus, and nobody loves you more than Jesus. So we fear others because they can expose us, but the fear of man is a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is safe. Have you allowed Jesus to cover your sin? Secondly, we can fear others because they can ridicule or reject us. If you're turning your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1, one of my favorite pictures of salvation is there. Uh, I read this passage this week in my Bible reading time, and I want to share it with you. I, 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 I know we've probably studied this together as a church family before, but Jesus often uh, in his public ministry made physical uh, miracles to, of course, help and heal people, but also to talk about and preach deeper truth. I mean, if we're born spiritually blind and spiritually dead, the only way that we can initially understand spiritual truth is through physical means, right? So because we still have our five physical senses, and so Jesus will often use something in the physical world that is true and valid and healing in the physical world, but he's after more than just that. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 40, you want to talk about somebody who's been rejected, it's that first phrase there, and a leper, right? In those days, this was the worst case scenario is to have leprosy. I mean, you're totally cut off. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if you were alive in those days that you'd have to say goodbye to your family forever for their good because you love them. You're going to withdraw from them, not be around them, not live with them, and you'd have to go and live in these leper colonies, and you'd have to often wear a bell uh, uh, around your neck, and everywhere you go, you got to give everybody an alert, sufficient notice. You go everywhere you go, unclean, unclean, so everybody can withdraw from you. Can you imagine? to go home today say i've got to me to look at my wife and my four children say i've got to leave from here and and then compounded to that is the fact that there's no cure for this you're gradually but definitively dying and, and, and we won't go into the details but the physical ramifications the often the loss of fingers and what it would do to your respiratory system it's is a horrific horrific condition but it's teaching spiritual truth right what is leprosy in the physical world a picture of it's a picture of sin i mean we saw it adam and eve they're spiritual lepers they're separated from one another they're cut off from one another Uh, uh, they're they're no longer unashamed they're shifting blame and so that's why the amazing verb connected to the leper in verse 40 the leper came up to him friends in those days you didn't do that 
A leper's supposed to do the opposite. The leper's supposed to leave, right? But I love every word of it. The leper came to him. See, it's something about Jesus that this leper found approachable. Something about Jesus said, I've been ridiculed, I've been rejected, but something about him, I've got confidence I'm going to come to him. So everybody's attention in the room for a moment. You, got, you can have confidence that you can have an audience with Jesus. He is not going to ridicule you. He is not going to reject you. This leper is coming with great humility. Look what, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. There's two parts of it. I love both of them. One, if you will, is he willing? And then two, you can make me clean. Is he able? Good news, good news. You ready for some good news? Jesus is both, friends. He is willing and he is able. Man, it wouldn't be good news this morning if he were willing. Yeah, I would if I could, right? And then it wouldn't be good news if he was able but not willing, right? But see, the leper, he comes to him. If you are willing, you can make me clean. And then verse 41 is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Moved with compassion. Aren't you glad it says that? Doesn't say it filled with annoyance, getting on his nerves. Hey, just move along, move along. You're disgusting. Leprosy, be out of here. I mean, this is the king of glory has come in humility, taken on the form of a servant. And, and here he is moved with compassion. Here's a, um, here's a side application for us. No time in all the Bible is it anyone ever described as compassion or moved with pity or moved with compassion that they don't do something. Every time the Bible says so-and-so, for, for example, the Good Samaritan, right? Here's a man who fell among robbers, and they left him half dead, and then the priest comes by, and the Levite comes by, and what do they do? They go by on the other side, but then the Samaritan comes up, here's what the Bible says, and filled with, tracking with me, compassion. They said, oh, that poor guy, mm, hate what happened to him, ah, but I got a schedule to keep. No, 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 he stopped everything, came down off his horse healed his wounds, bound him up, put him on, take him to the shelter, pay for his expenses. Um, another one, while well, his still a long way off, the Bible says to the prodigal son, his father saw him and was filled with compassion and ran to him and embraced him and said, we're going to kill the fattened calf, we're going to have a party. Compassion always leads to action. So if you think that you have compassion, but you don't have action, you don't have compassion, right? You might have something, some kind of tender feelings or something, but, you, but compassion always leads to action. So look at what Jesus' action was in this case. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and did the one thing you don't ever do to a leper. What's he do? He touched him. Now, friends, we understand from the full scope of Jesus' public ministry that he could heal people without touching them, right? You remember the centurion's servant came up to him. Hey, my servant who I love dearly, you could heal him. You just say the word, right? I'm a man under authority. I tell my uh, soldiers, you go and they'll go, or you stop and they stop. You're the same. And the Bible says Jesus marveled at this Gentile. He said, nowhere in all Israel have I found faith like that. In that moment, the man back at the centurion's house was healed. Jesus doesn't have to touch him. So why does he touch him? And here's the, here, you ready for the deep theological answer? Because he wanted to wanted to reached out stretched out his hand and he and he touched him right he says i will be clean 
And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now it's a picture of our salvation when Jesus, uh, and this is where all of the Gospel of Mark is going and where all the uh, revelation of Scripture is going is that Jesus is going to go somewhere and he's going to stretch out his hands. Amen. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to stretch out his hands. He's going to be nailed to the cross because he's willing. He's willing. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own. I'm willing. And friends, praise God Almighty, he's also able. He's willing to cover your sin. He's able to cover your sin. All the fears that you have of others ridiculing you or rejecting you, you can say this, hey, if he's accepted me, it doesn't matter who else rejects me. Amen? I mean, seriously, this is true to your life now. If everybody else re- ridicules you, everybody else rejects you, but you have acceptance and approval of him in Christ, that's how Paul lived his life. That's how Paul could go into Jerusalem. And he said, hey, I, don't, I honestly don't know if I'm going to come out of here alive, right? A man, don't fear him who can hurt body and soul. Fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell forever. That's what Jesus said. That brings us to this. We fear others because they can attack or threaten us. They can. Abraham was afraid of physical harm when he went to Egypt with his wife, so he lied. The Israelites were afraid of physical harm when they spied out the land. Well, not all of them. (laughs) Two of them weren't afraid. And then they perished in the wilderness. And Paul faced his fair share of physical violence. We fear others because they can attack or threaten us. Well, let's transition to overcoming the fear. Now that we've talked a little bit about it, let's talk about how to overcome it. We sang about overcoming, so let's talk about overcoming the fear of others. First of all, it starts here. The approval of God is of greater worth to us than the approval of others. Don't spend your life fearful about what others think of you. Most of what others think of you isn't true on two fronts. When they think ill of you, often not. But even when they think well of you, it's often not true either, right? So so be careful of both. Both are their their snares snares of their own design, right? We we don't want others, as they ridicule and reject us, that we... um, respond in uh, fear or or discouragement and we also don't want to fall for the trap of wanting their approval right because that's its own form of fearing others so the approval of God who knows everything about me is of greater worth to us than the approval than the approval of others we read the verse already but here again in Galatians chapter 1 verse 2 am I now seeking the approval of man or of God how would you answer that question Which one are you seeking today? Approval of man or the approval of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, our response to this is not, well, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. That's not what we're we're talking about, right? uh, In in fact, sometimes if we ask the question, do you fear other people, and your initial response is, I don't care what anybody thinks. That's often the person who most cares what other people think, right? But Paul, it's not that he didn't, give a lick what anybody else thought of him is that he wanted the approval of God knew he had the approval of God and he went into places to serve and love other people whether or not they appreciated it whether or not they applauded him whether or not they um, accepted him or condemned him or whatever because he already had his identity in Christ Jesus and another factor here is, uh, uh, is is we think of ourselves less we think of ourselves less. Man, this is just so freeing. Look at Acts chapter 20, 
in verse 24. Here's another glimpse into how Paul overcame the fear of others. And it's just simply this. He didn't think about himself all the time. Look what it says. Verse 24. This is back when he was in Ephesus. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. See that? He wasn't obsessed over his reputation. He wasn't obsessing over, did they think he was a great apostle? So if I only may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What does the Lord require of you but to fear him, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes which I'm giving you today for your good. Moses said that in one of our fighter verses, Deuteronomy something. I'm never good with the numbers. I apologize. Deuteronomy something, something. (laughs) But you see where it starts? Just think about that verse. If you fear others more than you fear God, just think of the domino effect. One, you're not going to walk in his ways. Two, you're not deeply going to love him. Uh, Three, you're not going to serve him. And number four, you're not going to obey him. You're going to love and serve and obey what you think other people want you to do. Well, I started with a silly illustration of my uh, assembly as a sophomore. I wanted to close with a different kind of assembly, and it's in Revelation chapter 5. Sometimes we can see how shallow the fear of other people is when we get a glimpse into eternity. You want to talk about the Excellence in History Award? <laughs> In Revelation 5, we get a picture of this great assembly where someone's going to be crowned as the righteous one of all history, of all eternity. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, the Apostle John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Is it a lion or is he a lamb? As though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense and the prayers, of the, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them to say to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And we read that passage of Scripture because I want you to see a glimpse into heaven, and this is where we're going, amen? And just think about how silly and shallow and nearsighted and foolish and, well, just use the proverb, what a snare it is to fear other people. But he who trusts in Jesus, the one who is the only one worthy, right? So Proverbs say, there is safety. The one who rules all of history stood in our place. He stands by our side. This one that we read about here in Revelation chapter 5, he knows everything about you. He doesn't ridicule you. He's not going to harm you. In fact, the gospel teaches us that he took the ridicule and the harm instead of you. He took it for you as he's being crucified. They mock, they ridicule. And I think Paul understood that. And as he stands before the Sanhedrin, and we continue through in Acts 22, he stands before the Jewish high priest, he stands before the Roman tribune. You know what I think? I don't think he was all that impressed with them. You brought your, you brought your cohort, the tribune, you brought your guys. I'm going somewhere where you hear what it said, myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. Hey, they might take my life. And ultimately, for Paul, what happened? They did take his life. But he said, I live in light of his approval. What can man do to me? What shall separate us from the love of God? Shall famine, tribulation, naked, nakedness, dangerous sword? And Paul goes on to say, no, I'm convinced of this. Neither height nor depth <laughs> or things that are here or things to come nor anything else in all creation. I know I'm not quoting it word for word, but he says this shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So friends, because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can say with confidence this morning, God offers freedom from this snare. So our invitation is for anybody who wants to be freed from it. Let's stand together. We're going to pray together. And uh, it's simple. The invitation is really simple. Really simple. Is as we thought through and studied the scripture, if you've realized that the fear of others is a snare in your life, the fear of others uh, makes you hesitant to share the gospel, the fear of others has you doing things that, uh, that uh, you know you ought not to do. And as we pursue the Lord, that he free us from it. Let's pray together. Father, if there be anybody here, in the sound of my voice, that's never believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray today you'd open their eyes, one, to their need. They've got spiritual leprosy. Gradual yet certain death. not able to heal ourselves not able to rid ourselves of the disease 
but you are willing. And praise God Almighty, you are able. That no one here this morning has such a case of leprous sin that the blood of Jesus can't redeem them, can't restore them, can't heal them, can't immediately cleanse them if they will but come to Jesus Christ by faith and say, Lord, if you're willing, you could make me clean. Thank you for a willing and able Savior. And Father, I pray for anybody here today that's just ensnared, just ensnared the fear of others, wrongfully concerned with what others think about them. Father, thank you for a Savior who knows everything about us and still loves us, who knows all the stuff we try to keep or cover up or hope nobody else finds out about. He already knows about it. And he offers, again, his life in place of ours. What a Savior. Father, lead our invitation time. Help us to get right what we need to get right. Help us to move on from what we need to move on from. Help us to be healed from what we need to be healed from. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.